one thing to get, one place to go, and my travels took me through Rivergate. And my one item to get, my one place to go, turned into a 15-minute project into an hour and 15-minute project. And as I sat through one red light for four times and another one for three times, I began to think about the season and how a month ago we talked about and I talked about not letting it be like every other Christmas, that I wasn't going to get caught up in all the stuff and the food and the parties and the packages and all of that, and how inevitably in the midst of the season, a lot of that happened. And before long, I was in the midst of getting caught up in all of that stuff that I said I wasn't going to. I thought about a movie line that most people probably wouldn't come to mind at Christmas, but came to mind while I was sitting in one of those lines in stillness for a moment. And it's a line where the main character just simply says, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around every once in a while, you might miss it. And I couldn't help but think for a minute as I looked around as people were in cars beside me and some excited about being in that traffic. Many not excited about being in that traffic. You could see it on their faces. As I went into the store for the errand that I was going to run, and I saw people working in the store running ragged back and forth, trying to find things, trying to help people. As I saw the looks on the faces of people who, obviously this is one of many stops they still had to get to. The phrase just came into my mind that Christmas moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around every once in a while, you might just miss it. And I coupled that with a a Bible study that I did on Wednesday in our uh, prayer meeting on Wednesday afternoons when the Lord led me to talk about the Magi for a little bit. And the thing that came out to me this year when reading about the Magi and the fact that they made a trip to see the Christ child wasn't just the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh and that these kings came and bowed down, but it was the fact that the very people who should have gotten Christmas missed it And the very people who missed Christmas should have gotten it. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. And I just want us to think about some lessons from the Magi today, some ideas. I've called it seek and find. Uh, Luke has come to the point where he really likes those seek and find books. Well, last night, before we could go to bed, we had to do a seek and find book in its entirety. And he had to show me where everything was. And you know where you have to look for certain things. And really, this part of this series of sermons where we're concluding this week is on the idea that that there were some people out there that were genuinely seeking for an answer. And that when you're seeking for an answer, God will provide. But yet there were some people who were right next to it who missed it altogether. And I was thinking about this week that that all of us are in our journeys in life and that, that many of us have found Christ or found God to follow through Jesus Christ. And we're in that journey. Some of us, that happened very quickly, and some of that's happened over a long period of time. And that the Bible gives both kind of scenarios. That there are those of us that were walking along one path, we were living one way, and the Lord just kind of showed up all of a sudden and snapped us into realization that He was what we needed. 
If there are other of us that have been on a journey, some of us have arrived and we have found Christ, some of us are still in the process, but the truth is that it's more of a journey to find Christ. Well, today we're going to talk about a group of people who went on a lifelong journey for knowledge, and their lifelong journey for knowledge led them to a child in a land they never expected. Chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard that he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him, when he called together all the chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found them, found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. And after they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that had been seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return or go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Three things I want us to think about this morning, lessons that we can learn from these magi, from these wise men. And the first is that no matter what's happening in your life, no matter what's happened in your life, no matter what circumstance you find yourself in in life, you need to continually search for God. You need to keep searching. I like to think of this story as a story of contrast, of differences. And on one hand, we've got the magi, these wise men from the east. Now, most of what we understand about the Magi and most of what we see in nativity sets about the Magi, including what's right here, comes from a song that we all know, right? We, three kings of Orion are. I used to love that song as a kid. I used to love it. The problem is we don't have a clue how many there were, and they weren't really kings. Other than that, the song's okay. Now, why do we say there are three of them? Because there are three gifts, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they people just assume, well, each one of them brought their own gift. So you go to a party, everybody brings a gift, they each brought a gift, so we have three. Now, kings, they were of the priestly line. They were more like priests than kings. Now, there may have been some royal blood in them, but they wouldn't have been kings of separate countries coming together. These guys would have been guys that spent their life learning about other cultures and their spiritual beliefs. They would have known all the libraries of the great uh, writings of people that given the oral traditions of what people's spiritual beliefs are. They would have searched scriptures of different groups. They really were in tune with what the sky was doing. Now, today, if we have people that look at the sky and try to predict their future from the sky, we call them what? astrologers, right? These guys were more than probably astrologers. 
They were people that looked to the stars. Now, here's the thing that's, that's kind of interesting about them, is that throughout their life, they would have been on a massive search for truth, on a massive search for understanding, on a massive search for spiritual insight. And one day, while they're doing all of their looking, while they're doing all their assessing, while they're looking at telescopes or whatever they had into the night sky, suddenly a new star appears. And they take it as a sign that something significant has happened. I want to contrast that with the people of Israel. Now, the people of Israel have been looking and searching for a Savior, for a Messiah, for many, many years. They have been trying to assess when the Messiah was going to come. They've been trying to determine when he was going to arrive. And for thousands of years, they had been talking about this promised one. The problem is, the longer they went waiting, the more people stopped waiting. You look back into the Old Testament, it started in the Garden of Eden, and you have this story of Adam and Eve, and God promises a deliverer will come, and so they wait, and they wait. I get taken into captivity, into bondage in Egypt, and in Egypt they call out for a deliverer, and as they wait for a deliverer, they call out, and they call out, and finally God brings them Moses, who is a temporary deliverer for them. And after Moses comes and delivers them temporarily, they get themselves over into the promised land and they begin to live as a nation. And as they're living as a nation, they look for another deliverer and they first get judges and judges come and judges go. And then they ask for a king and so God provides them a king and a guy like David becomes a temporary deliverer for them. And again, they wait for something more permanent and the prophets come and prophet after prophet talks about this great one that is to come. And the people keep crying, how long, O Lord, must we suffer? How long? long, O Lord, must we wait? How long, O Lord, until our deliverer comes? And over and over and over, they wait and they wait and they wait, and then nothing for 400 years. And just to be truthfully honest, even though there were claims of people in that time that they were the Messiah, even though there were people in synagogues still giving the word of the Lord, many people felt as if God fell silent for 400 years. How long do you wait before you give up? If you're working on a project and it's just not going like you want it to go and things aren't happening like you want it to happen, how long do you wait before you give up? Let's say you go to the grocery store and you've only got to pick up two or three items and you get the two or three items and you go to the front to check out and you get up to the front to check out and there are 14 people in each line. Do you wait or do you put the stuff not even on the shelf it's supposed to go, just right where you are, walk out? Just in life in general, how long do you wait before you give up? An illness comes into your life and you just can't get over it or the diagnosis isn't that good and you wait and you look and you ask for answers and you wait and you wait and you wait. But how long do you wait before you give up? There were many. Now, there were some. Not all of the Israelites, the children of God, had given up. But there were many of them who had just given up. 
Now, the truth is some of them had given up in the fact that they were no longer looking. Some of them had given up in the truth that they thought they had found what they needed and that the traditions that they had and the religion that they had and the day-to-day life that they had was exactly all that they needed or wanted. And so why look for anything else? The problem is when you do that, you shut out the possibility of God doing something amazing in your life. And I just wonder how many of us in this room Instead of being like the magi that were constantly searching, constantly looking, and even when answers didn't seem to come, they kept looking. How many of us are like that? And how many of us are like many in Israel? We've just given up. Finances are the same this year as they were last year. And even though we're expecting to have a Christmas, we're not expecting anything great from God in the midst of it. Family relationships are the same family relationships we had last year. and We went to Christmas last year with that same family, and we've dreaded going back with that family again this year. We don't expect anything to be different. Health in our life has been deteriorating for a while, and we've gotten to the point we just accept it. We don't expect anything different. Inside our homes, from children to parents or parents to children, we have gotten stuck in this rut of the way the relationships work and some good, a lot of bad, or vice versa, and you just expect that's the way it's going to be. In your spiritual life, it's just always been kind of like it always is. You go to church and you do this and you do that, but discovering something new this Christmas being taken to a higher level of commitment this Christmas? No. We've just quit searching. The tragedy of Christmas sometimes is not that we don't go through the motions. It's that we take this month and we lop it off and we say, this is a part of celebrating the Christ child. But in celebrating the Christ child, we never ask the question, what does God want to change in me this year. First thing this morning that we see in the Magi is they just keep searching. Here's the second thing. They act on what they know. They act on what they know. I think it's interesting. It it, it tells the story. It, you know, it just says that they were, after Jesus was born, it doesn't give a time. It doesn't give an ex- exact event. But it just says that after he was born, these Magi come. We don't know if this was six months later, a year later, two years later. The probability is it was at least time Jesus was at least a year old, maybe closer to two years old. The trip would have taken them that long. But what I love is these guys, they see the star, they gather the information, and they look at each other and say, let's go. Can you imagine if these guys would have looked at each other and said, man, that is interesting. Did you see that? I see that. That's a new star. That means something amazing has happened. Hey, could you take notes on that? Could you write that down real quick just so we know that it happened tonight? Well, do you think we ought to go look? No, 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 no. We're just getting information. We're just collecting stuff. We're not going to go anywhere. Now, we sometimes minimize the task. You you know, I, I don't mean to disturb any nativity sets at home or at the front of the church, but... The Magi would have not been at the manger. You realize that, right? They said that, that we don't know exactly where they came from. It just says from the east. 
ideas of where it could be could be that they came as far as eight or nine hundred miles. Now, for us, eight or nine hundred miles might be a couple of day journey. For them, eight hundred miles is a lot longer than that. I mean, we have people go eight hundred nine nine hundred miles. They they they'll be traveling that this weekend. Maybe not you, but they will. Last night, Eli and I were doing our best to encourage the holiday spirit at our house. We went out and got some Chinese food. All right? And we were standing in the Chinese food place, and we are waiting for them to finish our um, general chicken and sweet and sour chicken and fried rice and all that stuff. And while we're there, another family walks in, and you can tell they're probably not from around here because the girl, the college-age girl, is wearing flip-flops last night. And as they walked in, now I'm not saying that people around here don't wear flip-flops. There's some people that wear flip-flops, but it, it was cold last night, all right? And as they walked in, the, the dad, I could hear the dad saying, I told you when we left, it's not flip-flop weather up here. And so the, the lady says to them, you might want to go sit down. And they said, no, no, we've been sitting in a car for 12 hours. We're okay. So that, and you're standing there. You've got to ask the question, right? Where, where did you come from? I mean, where are you traveling from? They said, we're from Orlando. I said, wow, that's, that's neat. That's probably a little warmer down there, just a little. We picked her up at Gainesville at college, and I made that pass, all right, that we had a gator in the, our presence. And I said, well, where are you going to? They said, we're on our way to Michigan. Now, I don't know if you can travel farther than Florida to Michigan, but that is a long way. They went on to talk about how they had warned her daughter about not wearing flip-flops in the snow blizzard that was coming, but she chose to. I just thought, well, you know, that's a long trip. But they're in a car going 70 miles an hour. They can travel at night. They can do all of that. These magi from the east were on what? Camels, probably, donkeys. or You know, I mean, they're traveling by caravan. Slowly. And here's the thing. When they set out on their journey, they did not have a GPS on board, right? You know my favorite thing about a GPS is it gives that time of arrival. They didn't really know where they were going or when they were going to get there. They just knew a star appeared and they were going to follow it. Here's what's interesting about that to me. I mentioned the contrast. They get to Herod's place, and you've got to give this picture here, I mean, You've got wise men with their entourage, guys beside them carrying presents, carrying supplies, carrying food, attendants, and they all come into Jerusalem, and the word around Jerusalem would have spread very quickly. You have to know that it caused a scene because they got to see Herod, right? You didn't get to just go see Herod. You had to have a reason to see Herod. It would be like me just showing up at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and saying, I'd like to see the president. Now, are they going to let me in to see the president? No, they're not. I don't care how good of a guy you think I am. They're not, all right? You didn't get to just go see Herod. And so they get there, they go to see Herod, and they say, Herod, we got a question for you. This is the most amazing thing. We've come all this way, all the way from these. Where are you from? We're all the way back, way past Orlando, all right? And we've come to find this king of the Jews. I can just imagine, Herod, and this isn't recorded, and this is law speculation, not 
official scripture. But I can imagine her going, well, you found him. Congratulations. Here I am. Nice to, nice to meet you. No, we, we've come to find the one that was born like a couple of years ago. We want to see him. He's the king of the Jews. And Herod would have found that question very interesting. You see, you didn't go to Herod with those kind of questions. By the time the Magi got to see Herod, he'd already killed a couple of wives, a couple of sons, a daughter, some in-laws, some aunts, uncles. That's not an exaggeration. That's historical. Because he was afraid they were going to take his throne. And so when they get there, Herod says, I've got to find out about this. So he calls together some scribes, some Pharisees, some religious leaders, some priests, and he gets them all together and he says, hey, guys, where's the Messiah going to be born? Y'all, y'all have any clue about that? They go, oh, yeah, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Here's what I thought. you got two people in this story that knew the direction of where the child was going to be born. One, the Magi, and they acted on it. Two, all those scribes and teachers and priests, they had all the information, and they didn't do a thing about it. I read this week on Ed Stetzer, who works at Lifeway, on his Twitter account. He wrote these two things in the last week and a half. He said, first of all, we as an American church culture have knowledge addiction and application deficit. He said, we've made it acceptable to sit in church week after week and do nothing and still call yourself a follower of Jesus. What I see in this passage is this contrast between these two that knew what they were supposed to do. One did it and one did not. And I can't help but think, what area of my life, what areas of your life do you know what you're supposed to do and yet you're not acting on it? Is there a relationship this Christmas that needs to be mended and you know it does and you know you need to take a step and yet you are not doing it? Is there a person this Christmas that you need to share your faith with and you know you're supposed to and yet you're not doing it? Is it that you have been on a journey looking for the answer to your life and you have come to the place where intellectually you know that Jesus is the Savior, you know that He came, that He lived a perfect life, that He died for your sins and He rose again, but you have yet to take that step of faith to commit to Him to do what you know you're supposed to do? Is it that you've been on this journey and you're seeking truth and you're seeking answers and the answers are starting to come and yet you are unwilling to follow them wherever they may lead? Is it a ministry that you know God has called you to be a part of and yet you have refused to do it? Is it an activity that you know the Lord has called you to give up and yet you've refused to do it? Is it a way that you were to spend your money and you know the Lord has called you to do it and you have refused to act on what you know? The first two are easy that we see here. The seeking constantly, the acting on what you know are easy. The third one is not. It's simply this, to give Him everything. I remember the first time I really got an image of what this could be like. Growing up in West Tennessee, one of the Christmas events that that churches often did is that we would travel to Memphis 
and uh, we would go to Bellevue Baptist Church. Uh, if you've ever been through Memphis, you know Bellevue. Bellevue's uh, huge. Three crosses are huge out there now. Big place. It used to be uh, the largest church in America at one point. But we would go down there. They did a thing called a singing Christmas tree. But it wasn't like a you know normal singing Christmas tree. They had, I mean, every year they would add something. It went from like an hour-long program to like an eight-and-a-half-hour-long program. I don't, it just kept growing, all right? And you never knew what they were going to add, but they are always going to add something. I went one year. I remember I was about 12 or 13, and in the youth choir, if you were a part of the youth choir and were there so many Sundays, you got to take the youth trip just for your comfort level, you to know. I was the sound technician in the youth choir. I was not a singer in the youth choir, all right? They heard me sing once and said, you got any, we need somebody to run sound. Can you do that? Um, and so I'd been there that long, and we went to Bellevue. And it came for the time when the wise men were supposed to come. And all of my life, I'd seen these nativity sets and all of that. And this year, they decided to add the big production to the wise men, the magi. And so they, they start the production. And so they, they, they you know, the, they've done through all that. Mary's had the baby. They've, they've played the, the, the songs for all of that. And then all of a sudden, you hear the big timpani drums start. And the doors fly open in the back. And walking down the aisles are these little kids in front of camels, live camels. And on these camels are these men with huge hats that have these, these robes that are just flowing behind them. They've got four, like, teenagers flapping the robes as they go. And behind the camels are donkeys and horses and all of this stuff. He's just in amazement. Wow. And about that time, the music starts up. And the music that they start is a brand-new song that I'd never heard before called I Have Seen the Light. You heard that? Lately. And the three guys singing that, they only had three. They didn't have four. They couldn't find the fourth, I guess. They, that's a joke. There are 20,000 people in the church. They, uh, they started down, and they were in normal work clothes like you would wear every day. And the idea was that the wise men of today still seek the Lord, which I, I got pretty quickly. As they were coming down, you started to notice. I mean, you, it was just kind of like you noticed everybody in the church was looking back. What else is coming through that door? And they got to the front, and they had banners, and it was just this amazing scene. And as they turned, they looked towards the front and at the front. Now, I think biblically you can follow the story. In tradition, you would see that, that Jesus, like I said, was probably closer to two, one and a half to two years old. And at the front of the stage, they had this little two-year-old boy standing, waiting. Now, I did not realize a miracle that was occurring that night until I had two two-year-old boys. But that child remained stationary for about five minutes. All right? I don't know what they gave him. I've written and asked some questions about that, but no responses yet. So they stood there. And these kings, that's what they looked like, priests, came down. They walked up on stage, they took their hats off, and they bowed at the foot of that child. They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. The most important thing those men gave Jesus that day was not the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. It was their worship. They gave themselves to him. 
Now, I just want to tell you what has struck me this week about this passage of Scripture is this. There were lots of people in Jerusalem and in Bethlehem and in Nazareth that should have come and bowed at the foot of that child. And yet, they didn't. Either they didn't know, or they weren't looking, or they thought something had happened. They heard the shepherds telling, and they thought, no, not now. They just didn't. And yet these guys traveled whatever distance it took to get there. One of the interesting things about these guys is that they are, according to what you look at and read and all of that, some of the most pagan men you would ever meet. In fact, I mentioned earlier that they were astrologers. They were not Jewish rabbis. They were not Jewish priests. They were astrologers. I mean, after all, their name Magi, what does that sound like? Magic. They were that world's magicians. Now, don't get in your mind sorcerers and conjugation of spells and all that stuff. That's not what that was happening. What they were doing was they were trying to find the signs from anywhere. They were just seeking it. They were as pagan as they could get. Somebody has said they were down in the toes pagan. They were as far away from an understanding of who God is as you could be. And yet they are the ones that responded to the light that Jesus came into the world. And here's an interesting thing. What I think is fascinating is that they come to the people that they think ought to care. Right? They go to Herod, king of the Jews. He ought to care about this Jewish king. Well, he cares, but he cares for the wrong reason. They go to the scribes, the Pharisees. Surely they have already been. I mean, they don't come expecting to give them news of what has happened. They come expecting to say, oh, you're talking about Jesus. He's down the road roadblock. It's not there. These guys decided, even in their pagan ways, that whatever cost, distance, length of time, sacrifice it took, they were finding the child. And then when they get there, they do give him gold, which represents some of the best. They do give him frankincense. They do give him myrrh. But they give him their worship. I read a thing online this week about how to give good gifts. In case y'all were wondering about that, you got some shopping left to do. They said if you really want to impress somebody. Now, this isn't if you just, you know, I just got to get him a gift. Let me get him a gift. If you really want to impress somebody, three things. First of all, spend more than is expected. Give out of love, not obligation. And give something appropriate to him or to her. And I couldn't help but think about the wise men who gave more than was expected. I have no idea what Mary and Joseph thought when these guys showed up with gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, I know if somebody showed up at your house with gold and frankincense and myrrh, it'd get thrown over in the corner. Great. Well, maybe not the gold, but the frankincense and myrrh. What am I going to do with that? But for them, these were precious gifts. What? We not, no, no, no. You can just see Mary. That, that's, that's, that's not necessary. I'm sure it wasn't the last time in their lives they saw things happen with Jesus and go, what in the, you know, just amazement. They gave more than was expected. They gave. What I love about the fact that they worshiped before they gave is they gave out of love, not obligation. There was no reason in the world they had to give him anything. But they did. And they gave gifts appropriate to him. 
Now let me just ask you this Christmas, what would it mean for you to give to Jesus more than is expected or is reasonable for you? What would it mean this year to give out of love, not obligation? And what would it mean this year to give something appropriate to Him?